Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky makes a visit to Washington for meetings at the White House and to address Congress while his country is at war. Our story is coming up. Today is Wednesday, December 21st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Elon Musk says he'll step down as Twitter CEO once he finds someone, quote, foolish enough to succeed him. A Florida hospital now has three elected board members who question the effectiveness of COVID treatments and vaccines. I can tell you there are many people that I know that have been injured or have had adverse reactions. This development is a victory for the so-called medical freedom movement. And Pittsburgh Steelers running back Franco Harris, known for the most iconic catch in NFL history, has died at the age of 72. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The United States is hosting the president of Ukraine in his first visit outside his country since Russia's invasion 10 months ago. Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Washington wearing his trademark military khakis. He went to the White House to personally thank President Biden, to whom he presented a medal on behalf of a Ukrainian captain who wanted Biden to have it. From my heart, from the heart of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, from our nation, strong nations, all appreciation to you, first of all, Mr. President, for your big support. Zelensky's message will be extended in the coming hours to members of Congress, where Republicans will become the majority in the U.S. House next month and wield even greater control on what funding is authorized. In a sign of what the State Department describes as a show of the United States' enduring commitment to Ukraine's ability to defend itself, the administration is authorizing an additional $1.85 billion in military assistance. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports that for the first time, USA to Ukraine will also include a Patriot air defense system to help defend against Russia's persistent missile assault, which includes attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure during winter. The Patriot Air Defense System is a surface-to-air missile battery that uses a set of sophisticated radars to identify and attack incoming air threats like ballistic missiles. The U.S. Army uses them around the world, along with about a dozen U.S. allies. The U.S. is sending one battery to Ukraine, which, depending on what type of threat it's targeting, has a range of about 20 to 100 miles. That's much smaller than the area of Ukraine. So instead, it will have to protect one high-value target, like the capital, Kyiv. Ukrainian troops are expected to travel to Germany for training by Americans, which will likely take at least a month or two. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Washington. Taliban security forces fanned out to some universities and informal learning centers in the Afghan capital, Kabul, to enforce an edict that suspended women from higher education. NPR's Dia Hadid has more from Islamabad. The edict, issued by the Ministry of Higher Education, said women can no longer attend public and private centres of higher education. It follows a ban on most Afghan girls attending high school that began after the Taliban swept to power more than a year ago. Human rights activists reported that Taliban security forces turned away women trying to enter university buildings. Teachers said the security forces also stopped girls from entering some informal learning centres, where some have been attending classes while banned from formal high school. One English teacher reported security forces barging into his class, shouting at girls to go home. Taliban officials have not responded to requests for comment. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. The Dow closes up 526 points. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you're flying out of Logan Airport in the next few days, you'll have plenty of company because the bad weather heading our way at the end of the week. Many airlines are waiving change fees or for flights that are scheduled to depart during the storm. Massport Director of Aviation Ed Frenny says that's making the next two days even busier than expected. So people are trying to get out a little bit earlier if there are seats available. So it will be, we had a very busy morning this morning. We'll have a busy afternoon today. Uh, all day tomorrow, Thursday, and right into Friday. He says about 1.2 million people are expected to fly in and out of Logan over about the next week, and that's on par with the number of passengers at the airport over Thanksgiving time. While the bad weather is still headed our way, it's already hitting other parts of the country, and that is already causing more than 130 delays and three cancellations out of Logan today. Tickets for the inaugural celebration for Governor-elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll are now on sale. Moving the ball forward is the theme of the celebration that's going to be held at the TD Garden at 5 o'clock January 5th. The theme's title is a nod to Healy and Driscoll's time as college basketball players. Healy also played professionally. She says the inaugural celebration will be about looking to the future and engaging directly with people all around the state. Today is the winter solstice, meaning the shortest day of the year in Massachusetts. In fact, sunset is coming up in just about 10 minutes or so. From this point on, the days will be getting longer and brighter. Stephen Schneider is an astronomy professor at UMass Amherst. He says today is a good day to get outside and reconnect with the environment. It's something we've lost in our modern culture that we don't connect to what's happening. And and just coming back to a site and making a point of looking at all the things that are happening gives you a real sense of the changing seasons, the the way the sky and the, the sun and the moon are changing over time. The sun will be changing very soon. It'll set in Boston at 4.15 today, uh, as we said, in less than 10 minutes from now. It's been another beautiful day. Clouds move in tonight, though temperatures down to about 28. Tomorrow, a heavy cloud cover up around 47 for a high. Rain moves in tomorrow night. Winds pick up even higher wind gusts on Friday. Some as high as 60 miles an hour with drenching rain Friday, maybe one to two inches. Highs in the mid-50s, then sunny and cold on Saturday. 39 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 300 days after Russia invaded Ukraine, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, has left his country for the first time since the war began. He has traveled to shore up support from a key ally, the United States of America. And today he got a warm welcome from President Biden at the White House. It's an honor to be by your side in the United defense against what is a brutal, brutal war. A brutal, brutal war. Well, the two presidents will speak to reporters shortly. President Zelensky is set to address a joint meeting of Congress tonight. So what's at stake? NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid, diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman, and Tim Mack in Ukraine are here to brief us. And Asma, I'm going to let you kick us off because the action so far has been at the White House. The leaders are still talking now. What, do we know how that's going? <laughs> 
Uh, I will say, you know, we know that they've been in talks and we don't yet have word of what they two men have uh, discussed thus far. But a senior administration official uh, characterized this meeting to reporters yesterday as being a, quote, in-depth strategic discussion on the way ahead on the battlefield. Uh, We were also told that they'll be discussing sanctions as well as humanitarian and economic assistance. And I should say that in brief remarks that the two men made before they went behind closed doors, Biden told Zelensky that the U.S. and its allies will make sure that Ukraine continues to have the defenses that it needs. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to touch on just the enormous security preparations that were made for this visit. And Tim, let me let you hop in on that. You're in Odessa, Ukraine tonight. How dangerous is this visit for President Zelensky? Well, you know, there have been no commercial flights out of Ukraine since the beginning of the war. This is, as you mentioned, some 300 days ago. So traveling in and out of this country is a dangerous activity for him in and of itself. But it's worth noting what his decision to travel outside of Ukraine says about his thinking regarding the stability of his government and the situation of his country at war. Now, unlike 10 months ago, the capital of Kyiv is squarely under Ukrainian control. The Ukrainian military has taken back part, uh, large portions of areas once controlled by Russian troops, uh, most recently resting back control of Kherson. Now, 10 months ago, his Western allies in the U.S. urged him to leave Kyiv when the invasion, the full-scale invasion began, and he insisted on staying. Mm-hmm. One of these turning points in, in the early desperate days of the invasion was a video he took of himself out outside in Kyiv saying, we are here. So his decision to leave now tells us that he has some comfort in leaving, that he's not particularly worried about Russia's capability to undermine him or harm the Ukrainian military in his absence. And it says something profound, I think, about the state of the war right now as compared to when it started. And what are you hearing there in Ukraine as you ask people about how they see this visit? Well, you know, a lot of Ukrainian supporters for Zelensky are making a comparison between Zelensky and Putin. Within just over a day, Zelensky has traveled from the front lines in eastern Ukraine, in Bakhmut, where some of the fiercest fighting of the war is happening, all the way to Washington, D.C., to the White House. Um, But it's also worth keeping in mind what Ukrainians are facing in this particular moment. Many of them will not be able to watch Zelensky's speech to Congress, even if they wanted to, due to Russian strikes against electrical infrastructure all across the country. Millions of people in Kharkiv, in Kyiv, in Odessa, where I am, are without electricity. Internet connections, water, heat, all of that is missing, just as temperatures hover around freezing and we get into the deepest part of winter. Michelle Kellerman, let me bring you on in on the diplomacy here. President Biden, his administration, they've been backing Zelensky from the start. They had some specific announcements to that effect today. Yeah, another one, um, another $1.85 billion in military aid. And this one includes um, a new capability for Ukrainians. It's a Patriot missile battery. The U.S. still needs to train Ukrainians on how to use it, but it's something that Zelensky has been seeking. You know, as you heard from Tim, Russia's been bombarding Ukraine's critical infrastructure, and a, a Patriot air defense system could be used to protect, you know, at least some of that high-value infrastructure. Um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also promising to continue to work with allies and partners to get more support to Ukraine, to help uh, Ukrainians get through this winter, and to put Zelensky in the strongest possible position for eventual peace talks. Uh, Speaking of more support, I want to note that Congress is considering yet more aid, a new 
big package in the new year. Asma, as we know, Congress is about to flip. Mm -hmm. At least the House, the control is about to shift. What are the politics in play during this visit? Oh, gosh. You know, Mayor Louise, I think there are so many political angles here regarding this visit. Um, You know, the aim is to show broad bipartisan support here in Washington. But the reality is that there have been cracks in that broad bipartisan support. Um, Some Republicans have begun to question just how much taxpayer money ought to be going to Ukraine. We know that GOP House leader Kevin McCarthy has said his party will not write a, quote, blank check for Ukraine. And this is important because he could be the next Speaker of the House. Uh, I will say this visit ultimately had two audiences, uh, one here in the United States, the other Russia. And from the White House's perspective, this is also about showing Russian President Vladimir Putin that the U.S. will continue to support Ukraine. One of the many people watching this visit closely, I'm going to guess, will be Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. Michelle, I'm going to give you the last word because Putin uh, was out speaking. He was making statements today as well. What was his message? Yeah, he was actually addressing um, the top brass in Moscow and making clear that he has um, no plans to give up anytime soon. He acknowledged some of the difficulties that his forces um, are facing, but he says they're getting stronger with combat experience. And he said he's planning to give the army whatever it needs in terms of equipment and hardware. He said there are going to be um, no financial limits to that. You know, he portrays this as a proxy war with the West. He says that the capabilities of virtually all NATO countries are being actively used against Russia. I asked some U.S. officials what they thought of the speech, and they said, you know, they think that um, this war has already been a strategic defeat for Putin, and the U.S. is going to continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman and Asma Khalid here in Washington, and Tim Mack in Odessa. Thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you. And we will all be listening to President Zelensky's speech tonight. You can listen along with us. NPR is going to have special coverage starting around 7.30 p.m. Eastern. The social media platform TikTok is known for viral dances and a top-secret algorithm. But just this month, more than a dozen Republican governors have moved to ban the app on government devices. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to talk about where and why. Hi, Laura. Hi, Juana. So, Laura, who is banning TikTok? So far, at least 14 Republican governors from South Dakota to Alabama have issued bans or guidance against using TikTok on government devices. There are some differences between the bans, but they all say some version of the same thing. Basically, that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is based in China, and they're concerned about the app's data privacy. They say they fear it could be used by the Chinese government to gather information on U.S. residents. And this is actually coming at the same time as a bigger pylon of TikTok at the state government level. Indiana's attorney general recently sued the company, saying it violates the state's consumer protection laws. And so far, at least 15 attorneys general have asked Apple and Google to update their age rating for the app. So, Laura, what's the effect of these bans? And I should ask you, how do state governments use TikTok anyway? Well, I looked around and I found some examples like this one from Oregon and Utah election officials. Hi, I'm Utah Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson, and I oversee Utah elections. And I'm Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, and I oversee Oregon elections. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. But when it comes to vote by mail, we're on the same team. 
I also found some lighter examples like this one from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife. We're updating some of our educational material about aquatic nuisance species and these are some of the graphics that got rejected. So starting off strong with combat carp. That's not Posts like these will likely stop where the app is banned. Some of the bans also apply to state university systems, which may be using TikTok for recruiting. For example, Idaho just announced that no one will be able to use TikTok over the Wi-Fi connections at its public universities. And the bottom line is that the app is really big. TikTok announced last year that it had reached 1 billion monthly users globally. And in the U.S., about two-thirds of all teens say that they use it, according to the Pew Research Center. So while it's not the most popular social media platform overall, it's grown really, really quickly. So it's one where some government institutions and candidates want to be. You know, it feels like we've been hearing a lot more recently about governments interested in banning TikTok. But what's the backstory behind this? You may remember that former President Donald Trump attempted to ban TikTok several years ago. This is not exactly new. But more recently, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, warned Congress this fall that TikTok is a national security concern. Many of the governors now banning the app specifically mention his warnings. And that comes in part from a 2017 law in China that says all organizations and citizens must support national intelligence gathering if asked by the government. Another reason is just political. I talked to Thad Kauser, who's a political scientist at UC San Diego, and he says the bans are just popular with GOP politicians. It's both important for cybersecurity in their minds of, of their state, but also it's really important to establishing a Republican brand, right? A central tenet of what unites Republicans now is standing up to China. I should note that while at the state level, Republicans are leading the charge, at the federal level, the scrutiny is bipartisan. There's language in a bipartisan omnibus bill to keep the federal government funded that would ban TikTok on federal devices. It's expected to pass this week with bipartisan support. And Laura, before I let you go, what does TikTok say about these allegations, about these bans? TikTok spokesperson Brooke Oberwetter told me the company is, quote, disappointed that so many states are jumping on the political bandwagon, end quote. She said the company will continue to work with the federal government to try to address security concerns. You know, overall, cybersecurity experts say that, yes, TikTok poses a risk, but so does the broader environment of buying and selling user data online. That's NPR's Laura Benshoff. Laura, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, how hotels are having to adapt to the shortage of workers, including by allowing employees more flexible schedules. That story is still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. It was a strong day on Wall Street, with each of the main indices picking up right about 1.5% today. The Dow ended the day at 33,376. S&P closed at 38.78, and the Nasdaq finished at 10,709. The city of Watertown has the green light to impose fees on commercial development. The move comes after Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill last week that authorizes the fees on new commercial real estate projects. The money will help fund affordable housing initiatives. Several other communities have 
have similar fee structures in place. They include Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, and Everett. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Tonight at 7.30, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to address Congress during a trip aimed at underscoring U.S. support for the country as Russia's war against it drags on. You can hear his address live at WBUR at 7.30 tonight. 37 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If your holiday travels include a hotel stay, keep this in mind. There's a good chance that wherever you're staying will be acutely short-staffed. Despite higher wages, hotel owners and managers still can't fill positions. So they are having to adapt in all sorts of ways, as NPR's Andrea Hsu reports. In the laundry room at the Country Inn and Suites on the north side of Baltimore, the dryers are humming, rags are soaking, and a four-year-old boy is happily snacking on some Ritz crackers as he watches his mother fold sheets. The owners here, Deepak Patel and his wife Deepa, began allowing staff to bring their children to work last year. Business had picked up at the mid-scale hotel, but they were unable to bring back workers, especially in housekeeping. Childcare was a real issue for some staff, and the couple couldn't afford to lose anyone. So they decided... Okay, bring your child here. At least we are finishing the work, you know. Before the pandemic, the Patels had 25 to 30 people on staff. Now they're down to 14. They've had zero luck hiring this year, even though they've raised wages from about $10 an hour before the pandemic to $16 an hour now. Nobody wants to work, actually. I mean, kind of, we are still surprised at who, where everybody are. Deepak Patel knows he's competing with the Amazon warehouses nearby and a lot of other employers, too. These days, workers have a lot of choices. There are companies offering technical training and even free college tuition. In the old days, Patel says lots of people would just walk through the door and fill out a job application. Nowadays, no one. So he and his wife have been filling the gaps themselves. Since 2020, we haven't had a day off. We come every single day. They staff the front desk, manage the free breakfast, do room inspections, also laundry. Unload, load, put it in a dryer, put it in a washer. It's a whole family affair. Their two girls come every day after school to help out. And still, with just six people in housekeeping taking care of 81 rooms, they cannot offer the level of service they used to. Now they clean rooms only every four days, unless a guest requests otherwise. Of course, if somebody's here for one night, we definitely want to clean that room so we can resell that room to new guests. But if somebody's here for three nights, 
we don't clean that room until they check out. Deepak Patel has been thinking hard about whether this business even makes sense anymore. How do you run a 24-hour operation without workers? He's exploring all the options, including one I got to see in New York. So now I'm going to press this button. Off he goes. Merle Ayers is director of banquets at the Garden City Hotel on Long Island. He's brought me over to meet The Wiz, a robot vacuum, one of two the hotel bought late last year for roughly $30,000 each. The other one's up in housekeeping. So what's happening right now is The Wiz basically is following a pre-programmed route, and it's going to complete that route and vacuum the whole rug. Well, as long as we humans don't get in its way. It's trying to figure out where to go right now. You're kind of in its way, too. The Wiz will clean the red and gold carpet we're standing on in 30 to 40 minutes, about as long as it would take a human to do the same job. But it's not about saving time. It's about saving manpower. As you can see, the gentleman I have here working over here, he's doing something else while this is vacuuming the floor. Which is key because this hotel, with its gold ceilings and crystal chandeliers, is also short-staffed. Around 15 to 20 percent of their positions are unfilled. I've been in the hotel business for very long time, and I've never experienced this. Grady Cullen is managing director here. He's found that since the pandemic, workers want more freedom. They don't want to be tied down to their jobs. So just as the Patels have done in Baltimore, Cullen has become very accommodating of the staff. We've even tried to fill positions by saying, let's not make it a full-time. Whatever flexible hours, what hours do you have available? And we'll cobble together what would have been a 40-hour shift for one person with three or four. But what he won't touch, daily room cleanings and nightly turndown service. He says travelers paying four-star hotel rates expect an A-plus experience. This hotel is 148 years old. And it's always been the dominant, iconic property in its region. The reputation is caved. Deepak Patel's hotel in Baltimore has a much shorter history, but he is also thinking about how to keep guests happy. He's leaning toward leasing a robot vacuum to allow housekeeping to focus on other things. And another technology has caught his eye, a kiosk that would sit just inside the entrance. There's some person actually come to the screen as soon as you walk closer to the kiosk. A live person? Live, I mean, on the screen outsource somewhere in some country, but they can collect the payment, they can check in the gas, they can even make a key, they can make a room change. It's not something he would have ever thought about when workers were plentiful. And even now? We are not looking to replace the person 100%. It's some filling up the gap at some time. Like now, when the phone is ringing and Patel is the only one here. Do you need to answer the phone? Yeah, answer the phone, I'm sorry. No problem. Before he got into the hotel business, Deepak Patel actually worked as a software engineer. Now he's thinking he ought to go back. A nine-to-five job would bring peace of mind, he says, and allow him to take his family on a long-overdue vacation. Good afternoon, Country News. It's Baltimore. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. 
Pittsburgh Steelers fans are in mourning today. The team announced the death of running back Franco Harris at age 72. His number, 32, was set to be retired Saturday, in part because of his role in the greatest play in NFL history, the Immaculate Reception. When he was drafted by the Steelers in 1972 out of Penn State University, Harris was ambivalent, as he shared in an interview with the team in 2019. At Penn State, I... uh really didn't follow the Steelers at all. And I didn't want to be drafted by the Steelers. <laughs> they stunk. The team hadn't made the playoffs since 1947. And Harris exceeded expectations, winning the NFL's Rookie of the Year award during the regular season. But that accomplishment would soon be eclipsed. Everybody says that they saw it. And one interesting thing is that it was not a sold-out game. And yet, everybody says they were at the stadium. (laughs) Franco Harris reliving the moment on the confluence from member station WESA. And even if you saw it that day in the stadium or on TV or now, 50 years later, it's sort of hard to comprehend. Quarterback Terry Bradshaw's original target deflected the ball, and a charging Harris scoops it before it hits the ground. And he never stops running until he makes it to the end zone. running out of the pocket looking for somebody to throw to, fires it downfield, and there's a collision. It's it's cut out of the air. The ball is pulled in by Franco Well, is that me? And just reflect back and realize how special that year 1972 was, how incredible the play was, and then the unbelievable run that we had during the 70s. That unbelievable run, it includes four Super Bowl championships. Harris's immaculate reception catch and run put him and Terry Bradshaw in the annals of sports history. Bradshaw says he is still in a state of shock after hearing the news. And on Twitter, Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy said Harris was, quote, the kindest, gentlest man I have ever known. He was a great person and great teammate, a tremendous role model for me. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The sun has set in this winter solstice. From here on out, brighter days are ahead, literally. For the next couple of days, though, clouds should fill up our hours. They move in tonight with lows about 28, so pretty chilly tonight. Then tomorrow, clouds settle in, temperatures rising to mid-40s. Tomorrow night, rain galore, strong winds as well. And that sets the scene for a stormy day on Friday. Soaking rains, extremely high winds, likely to bring down trees and power lines. Temperatures in the mid-50s Friday. The calm after the storm on Saturday, although it should turn a lot colder. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science with seasonal exhibit All Aboard, Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at mos.org. The British actor Naomi Aki has the starring role in new biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody. I don't look like Whitney. I don't sound like Whitney, I'm not a singer, (laughs) so there's a a lot of things that I I kind of had to fill the gaps for. How she reflects the life and the talents of the late Whitney Houston for the screen, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington and met with President Biden at the White House today. Later, he will address a joint meeting of Congress. 
Arizona's losing Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake is getting her day in court. For member station KJZZ, Jill Ryan reports she has two days to present her unstantiated claims of election fraud. Lake, who lost to Democrat Katie Hobbs by 17,000 votes, has claimed for weeks that her loss was illegitimate. Although the majority of the claims in her lawsuit have been dismissed, Lake is now asking an Arizona judge to either declare her the winner or order a re-vote in Maricopa County, the state's largest. But proving her claims has a high bar and entails demonstrating that misconduct occurred and that election officials intended to deny her victory. Whatever the ruling, an appeal to the Arizona Supreme Court is likely. Maricopa had printing issues with some of its ballots on Election Day, but officials say everyone affected got the chance to vote and all ballots were counted. For NPR News, I'm Jill Ryan in Phoenix. Millions of people in the central and eastern part of the country are bracing for a major winter storm with heavy snowfall, bitter temperatures, very strong winds, and blizzard conditions in the upper Midwest through the end of the week. The cold weather is also expected to hit parts of Texas, and that could affect migrants trying to come into the U.S. through Mexico. Peter Lake is head of the Public Utilities Commission. He says the state's power grid is ready. Generators have also rescheduled maintenance to make sure that Every generator available in, the tech, in Texas is ready to go. The bitter cold is also expected to reach the mid-Atlantic by the end of the week. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 526 points. The Nasdaq up 162 points. The S&P 500 up 56. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is preparing for Friday's storm. Agency spokesperson Christian Cunney says the heaviest rain and strongest winds should begin around 2 a.m. Friday and last through the afternoon. Parts of Massachusetts could get wind gusts of up to 65 miles an hour, especially on the North Shore and in southeastern parts of the state. Residents should also prepare for coastal flooding with rainfall amounts up to 2 inches. Charge your your devices, um, test your generators, uh, and and please do that outside of your house or garage. Um, We recommend folks clean out storm drains to to prevent cooling and and flooding of rainwater uh, and test those sump pumps if you have them. Connie says falling temperatures later in the day Friday could also make for slippery roads. The state police union is fighting to get seven troopers reinstated to the force. They were suspended without pay following a 2021 governor's mandate that requires executive office employees to be fully vaccinated against COVID or have approved medical or religious exemptions. Today is the second day of arbitration between the union and the state. Police are investigating racist graffiti found near Wayland High School. The discovery was made about 7.30 this morning at the Wayland Community Pool. It targeted a school staff member. The acting Wayland police chief says the town does not tolerate any acts of hatred. Police say anyone with information should call them. And Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren has reintroduced legislation aimed at ending gun violence in the country. The bill would create a federal gun licensing system, strengthen background checks, and ban military-style assault weapons. She felt another version of the bill in 2020. Federal data show nearly 49,000 people lost their lives to gun violence last year. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. 
It's nice to pull out a beautiful day today because that's going to be it for a couple days. Tonight, clouds move in, temperatures down to about 28. Tomorrow, a heavy cloud cover up around 47 for a high. Rain moves in tomorrow night. Winds pick up even higher wind gusts on Friday. Some as high as 60 to 65 miles an hour with a drenching rain, possibly 1 to 2 inches. Highs in the mid-50s, then sunshine moves in on Saturday. 37 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd, this film is rated R. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U. Com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Twitter owner Elon Musk says he plans to resign just as soon as he can find someone, as he put it, foolish enough to take the job. For the past two months, under Musk, the social media platform has been in a constant state of upheaval. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen is here to discuss what may be next for Twitter. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Mary Louise. So when I say it's been in constant upheaval, I'm not sure there's been a single day since Musk took over that hasn't generated controversy of some sort of another. Why is he announcing now that he plans eventually to step aside? That's right. It's been a head-spinning couple months, but a few important things have shifted recently. First, key Silicon Valley supporters of Musk's takeover of Twitter have started to lose faith. And over at another corporation he runs, the electric vehicle company Tesla, investors are becoming impatient. Musk is used to having his fair share of haters. But, you know, when some of his most powerful and influential supporters start to back away, I think Musk listens. He also conducted a poll on Twitter asking his followers if he should step down. It was a bit of a stunt, but a majority of the respondents said yes. Do we know what specifically is making these influential, powerful supporters distance distance themselves? Yeah, he made some policy decisions in recent days that were widely condemned. First, he temporarily suspended the accounts of half a dozen journalists from outlets like the New York Times and CNN. These reporters have written critically of Musk. Some have written or tweeted about a Twitter account that tracked the movement of Musk's private jet, all based on public information, I may add, but Musk didn't like it, so he suspended them. Press freedom advocates were alarmed. The second move that became instantly divisive was Musk announced that linking to competing social media sites would be banned. So note tweets linking to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter alternative Mastodon. Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, who has supported Musk, said that didn't make sense. And Paul Graham, who is a prominent venture capitalist, said it was his last straw and that he would be leaving Twitter. Now, Graham has also been a longtime ally of Musk. Musk reversed both of these controversial moves, but, you know, not before some real damage was done here. Okay, so where do things go next? Do we know who Musk might choose as his replacement? Do we know when? Do we know if he means it? Is he really going? Yeah, all good questions. Musk hasn't named any possible replacement, but longtime observers of Musk say if you look at his other companies, Tesla and rocket company SpaceX, he does tend to tap people from his inner circle to take over executive functions. So 
That sure does look likely. Now, there's no timeline as to when this might happen, but one thing is certain. It's not going to be an easy job. Morale is low at Twitter. The latest estimates suggest that when you combine layoffs, resignations, and others who have left, about 70% of Twitter staff is now gone. The other thing is, Musk would still be the ultimate decider. He still owns Twitter, and all decisions at the end of the day will still fall to him. So when Musk says it's going to take some time to find someone foolish enough to take the job, well, Mary Louise, his assessment might really be right there. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Mary Louise. And Pierre's Bobby Allen. Out of 6,000 hospitals in the United States, about 200 are run by publicly elected board members. And those board elections usually have nothing to do with national politics or big culture war issues. But at a top medical facility in Sarasota, Florida, a group of political activists opposed to COVID protocols saw an opportunity. Reporter Zach Hirsch has the story. In November, Sarasota Memorial Hospital got three new board members. They questioned the effectiveness of vaccines and COVID treatment protocols. They're a minority on the nine-person board, but their victory has thrown the typically quiet board meetings into chaos. Order, please. About 200 people showed up to a meeting late last month. Many of them were medical professionals concerned about the hospital's future. There were also lots of self-described health freedom supporters. Some had lost loved ones during the peak of the pandemic and blamed the hospital. Others blasted the hospital's leadership for ignoring COVID treatments such as ivermectin that are not supported by mainstream medicine. Michaela Matthew and more than a dozen others demanded an investigation into the hospital's management during the worst of the pandemic. So we want answers. There will be no amnesty. You failed. Similar public clashes have happened elsewhere, but this movement is especially strong in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis was one of the first state leaders to roll back mask guidelines. Lately, he's used rhetoric that's increasingly hostile to vaccines. I mean, these people need to be heard, and we have a spotlight on us in Sarasota. We can be the change that everyone else needs in other healthcare systems. That's Bridget Fiorucci, one of the new board members. She's a registered nurse who's worked on the front lines during the pandemic. In an interview with NPR, she said she's never gotten the COVID vaccine. There are many people that I know that have been injured or have had adverse reactions. While there have been extremely rare cases of serious side effects, the scientific research has overwhelmingly shown that COVID vaccines are safe and effective. People stand a far higher risk of dying by going unvaccinated. Another new board member, also a registered nurse, dismissed that scientific consensus around the vaccines as, quote, unquestioned uniformity. Many of the hospital's doctors and nurses spoke up at the board meeting to push back against accusations that the hospital failed the community. Dr. Sarah Temple is an emergency medicine physician. Doctors want to help people. That is the reason we all do this. Despite our most heroic efforts, we just couldn't save so many of our patients. The medical freedom movement has claimed numerous victories in local elections around the country, with groups like Stand for Health Freedom pushing the cause in sheriff, school board, and county clerk races. Anti-vaccine candidates ran for public hospital boards in Washington state last year, but lost. The victory at Sarasota Memorial appears to be the first of its kind. A retired doctor and outspoken conservative named Stephen Gafanti helped lead the campaign. In viral videos and public appearances, he tells a dramatic story of being falsely imprisoned at Sarasota Memorial Hospital while he was sick. And they wouldn't let me leave. It turns out that it's more lucrative to have you die in the hospital than go home. 
That's a reference to a conspiracy theory that hospitals inflate COVID deaths for profit. It's not true. At the meeting last month, the new board members successfully pushed to open a review of the hospital's COVID practices. In an email, a hospital spokesperson said the review will look into, quote, specific individual patient care concerns, including those shared by Dr. Gafanti. She said they're also taking a broader look at care throughout the pandemic to review the lessons learned and plan for the future. We are an elected body. Tram Hudson is the board's chairman. You know, if the citizens elect folks that might have some alternative views, I think that we should listen to the citizens. While he doesn't buy into the conspiracy theories about the hospital, he says the review will put people at ease. But many others interviewed for the story were deeply disturbed. Dr. Peter Hotez is a vaccine expert and pediatrician at Texas Children's Hospital, who's followed medical freedom movements for years. This kind of health freedom propaganda rhetoric, it's not just an academic discussion, it's endangering the lives of Americans, and in this case, Floridians. Hotez estimates 200,000 Americans needlessly died in the last half of 2021 and early 2022 because they weren't vaccinated. The hospital's internal review is underway now. Findings will be made public by March of next year. For NPR News, I'm Zach Hirsch. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For many teens, learning to drive is a rite of passage that opens doors to new jobs, a more independent social life. But as a mom of teenagers, I can tell you that learning can also be expensive and time-consuming. Minnesota Public Radio's Catherine Richard reports on a new program in Rochester's public schools that aims to make it easier for students to get their licenses. It's a couple of days after Rochester's first big snow and it's Joyce Belafonte's first winter drive. Do you have any information about driving on um, snow and slush? Yeah, you should drive slower. (laughs) That's Rochester Police Department investigator Chantel Powell, one of 20 cops volunteering to help students learn to drive. On this day, she's working with 17-year-old Belafonte, who needs 50 hours of practice to get her license. Take turns and everything slower than what you, you know, normally would. Um, Yeah, that's a cop in the passenger seat, part of a program to get more teens on the road legally and safely. A recent school district survey of driver's ed students found almost a third had driven without a license. Aaron Vasquez, an administrator at one of the participating high schools, says that can be for a lot of reasons. Their parents can't drive them. They need to get a job. They want to see friends. You know, if a student gets a ticket, And if they're unable to pay that ticket, then it kind of snowballs. And then sometimes they get buried in fines. Sometimes they don't have access to employment because they don't have the ability to drive. So last spring, with more than $117,000 in grants and cars donated by the county, the first driver's ed class began. Students pay what they can afford instead of the regular $400 class fee. That's a game changer for 15-year-old Ajulu Otho, who moved here recently from Kenya. There, many people didn't drive because they couldn't afford cars. So Otho sees a license as a way to get a job to help support her family financially. Because my dad is the only one working right now. My mom just had a baby and she can't work. So this is a really big thing for us. Welcome. (laughs) All right. 
Um, did everybody get a booklet? At Century High School, teacher Chris Jones says the driver's ed class is intense, three hours a day for 10 days. The big barrier is getting the driving hours in. They have to have 50 hours in uh, before they can take their, their license exam. And that's where the Rochester Police Department steps in. When kids don't have a car for practice or an adult who can drive them, a police officer teaches them the ropes. Chief Jim Franklin says the new partnership helps get in front of a host of problems that can lead to crime and poverty, like not being able to drive to a job or an after-school activity. And he says it's helping cops and young people get to know each other at a time when tensions can be high between law enforcement and people in the neighborhoods they police. There certainly is a community connectedness aspect to it, which does lead to building trust and legitimacy. Uh, but there's also a traffic safety uh, nexus, having cops teach kids to be better drivers, which is extremely important for this community. Back at her lesson, the rapport between Belafont and Powell is clear. Belafont calls Powell her cop lady, and Powell knows all about a tragedy in Belafont's past. Her older brother was driving when he died in a car accident in 2017. He didn't have his license yet. I wouldn't say boys and stupid decisions. I would just say young kids and making decisions that they think will turn out good, and sometimes they just don't. Bella Font keeps driving. Powell reminds her to use her turn signal and then tells her she's doing great. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Richard in Rochester, Minnesota. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, earlier this year, a panel of health experts recommended doctors screen all adults 65 and under for anxiety disorders. Just ahead, the pros and cons of universal screening and treatments for anxiety. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting properties across Massachusetts, adventure is in their nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash explore. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today and is expected to address a joint meeting of Congress tonight at 7.30. You can hear his address at 90.9 WBUR. Once again, it's live at 7.30 tonight. Longest night of the year is just beginning now. It's the winter solstice. Clouds move in for this long night tonight and should stay around for tomorrow. During the day tomorrow, we should have high temperatures probably about the mid-40s. And then tomorrow night, plenty of rain, strong winds as well. A stormy day on Friday, rained through the day, extremely high winds as well, temperatures warming to the mid-50s. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting properties across Massachusetts, adventure is in their nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash explore. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Electric vehicles are coming to West Tennessee. There's never been this size and scale of a private investment in this kind of a remote rural area. I'm Kyle Rizdahl getting Ford's new EV plant up and running. That story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street, of course, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Earlier this year, an influential panel of health experts issued a draft recommendation saying that doctors should screen all adults under 65 years old for anxiety. Today, for our series on anxiety, we will explore what those recommendations mean and how to best access treatment. NPR's health correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee, joins us now. Hi, Ritu. Hi, Juana. So glad to be here. Glad to have you. So start by telling us a little bit more about these screening recommendations. So they come from what's called a U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and they're recommending that primary care physicians should screen all adults 64 years and under for symptoms of anxiety. So, you know, every time you or I go to the doctor, we'd be asked a set of questions from a standardized screening tool. And if somebody is experiencing symptoms, their doctor can then connect the person to appropriate treatment. And I spoke with Dr. Rebecca Brendel. She's the president of the American Psychiatric Association. And she says screening people is a critical first step, especially given just how common anxiety disorders are. It's estimated that about 20% of Americans at any given point in time are experiencing symptoms of an anxiety disorder. And that could mean generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I should add that having high levels of anxiety on any particular day doesn't necessarily mean that somebody has a disorder. Mm. That's something for a mental health care provider to diagnose ultimately. You know, we hear so much about how overwhelmed doctors already are and this would be adding another thing to their plate. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that even feasible? It's a great point. But as Brendel points out, many doctors are already screening for depression. You know, every time I go to see my primary care doctor here in D.C., a nurse asks me about my mood when she's taking my weight and blood pressure. And it really doesn't take that long. Mm-hmm. And Brendel says that depression screening, which has been going on for a few years, has really had an impact. What we do know is is that for people who screen positive for symptoms of depression, they are getting care at the point of primary care contact. And that's really important. And Ritu, how are anxiety disorders treated? So there are really good evidence-based treatments and anxiety disorders do respond well to them. The treatments include medication and psychotherapy and a combination of the two are particularly effective. And a specific type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is the most effective and it includes something called exposure therapy. So the person with the disorder is exposed slowly to a specific trigger for anxiety in the presence of a mental health care provider until over many sessions, the person becomes more comfortable and no longer feels anxious when they encounter that trigger. Huh. And to me, this raises a question of access, right? What if you're someone who lives in an area where there just aren't that many therapists? That's such an important question, Juana, because access to mental health care providers is a huge issue. And some of that is because of a shortage of providers. And many are even leaving their professions because of burnout uh, since the pandemic. And also because reimbursement rates for mental health care providers are really low. And that essentially translates into many people who need help don't get it. People like Eleanor Regenthal, who's a full-time student, and she struggled with anxiety through the pandemic. She lives in Moxville, North Carolina, which is a rural area. There's definitely no chance of finding therapists out here. But when I was closer to the city, there were a plethora of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists nearby. Still, none of them were accepting new patients. 
And one of the ways in which healthcare providers are trying to address this is by having primary care doctors consult with a psychiatrist so they can do some of that frontline mental health care. And this model is called the collaborative care model. Now, I have to admit that there is a lot more that needs to happen on that front to improve access, but it's the general direction that the field is headed. That's NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. When we refer to the unhoused, we usually mean people. Their pets are overlooked. In Southern California, there's a veterinarian who for years has been providing free medical care for the cherished companions of the homeless. Gloria Hillard reports. Few outsiders breached the invisible boundaries of Los Angeles' Skid Row. Its residents emerged from behind blue tarps, cardboard, and scavenged materials. It is real estate marked by suffering, addiction, illness, and a simmering rage. It is where veterinarian Dr. Kwan Stewart can often be found. He's looking for animals that need his help. One appears within minutes. A smiling pit bull mix and his owner, a woman with a worried look on her face. The tall man in blue scrubs bends down eye level with the dog. Who's this? Natasha. Natasha? Uh-huh. She's a beautiful dog. Yeah. The older woman nods in agreement as Stuart takes the stethoscope from around his neck and gently holds the animal. You can curly take this, okay? Stuart treats the dog for a mild ear infection and tells Lisa he'll check on both of them in a week. Many of the homeless here won't give their last names. They want to protect their privacy, their identity, of which they have little left. But Lisa is willing to say what Natasha means to her. Everything. Everything. She needs me. And she's, um, she's important. She's my priority. I realize how vital these pets are to these people. And I see the relationship, I see the need, and the one small area I can help is provide a resource they have trouble getting. It was his time as a veterinarian at a high kill shelter that brought Stuart to this work. I said I can't go into work. I didn't, I couldn't go into work and euthanize another dog at the shelter. One day, he stopped to talk to a homeless man with a sick dog. After treating the animal, he returned a week later. The man was forever grateful, and he just said with tears in his eyes, thanks for not ignoring me. Stewart has been walking these streets for six years. Someone points down the street. Hercules, a short and sturdy dog with a new harness, is having trouble walking. His owner, a young man leaning against a chain-link fence, says the dog was hit by a car. He watches closely as Stuart examines the dog's hind leg. His knee is swollen. I'm hoping he just sprained it. What I'd like to do is get him in for an x-ray, though. Stuart recently gave up his practice at a clinic and established a nonprofit called Project Street Vet to help pay for this care. You guys, you know anybody nearby that has a pet? Down the street is a noticeably clean tent, a sign that its owner has not been here long. Holding a small black kitten with a green halter is Anna, a young woman with green streaks in her shoulder-length hair. He was homeless too, so we're just being homeless <laughs> together. So. She tells the veterinarian she's been doing her best to take care of the kitten she named Cole. You're doing a good job. He looks good. The 27-year-old grins and hugs the small creature to her chest. <laughs> he is only thing that keeps us sane. <laughs> Words Dr. Kwan Stewart has heard many times. These beloved companions are a lifeline for those who call Skid Row home. For NPR News, I'm Gloria Hillard in Los Angeles. 
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are at home at the Garden tonight as they greet the Indiana Pacers, 7.30 game time. Lots of clouds overnight tonight, temperatures down to about 28. Then for tomorrow, plenty more clouds, 47 for a high. Rain moves in tomorrow night. The winds pick up. Even higher gusts coming on Friday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Metal of Honor showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump's tax returns reveal his track record as a businessman. The businesses he controls tend to underperform and report huge losses each year. The returns also reveal that Trump paid no federal income tax in 2020. It's Wednesday, December 21st, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we speak with Republican Congressman Fred Upton as he prepares to retire. He says the work of the January 6th committee has been crucial. Had we not done this, it would have been swept under the rug. You never would have gotten to these facts. I mean, it was like pulling teeth with some of these folks. We'll speak with one of the few Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Also, how El Paso, Texas is dealing with a huge number of migrants at the border. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky are holding a joint news conference at the White House at this hour. It follows the surprise announcement last night the Ukrainian leader was making a daring wartime trip to Washington. Biden a short time ago reiterating the U.S. and Ukraine will continue to project a united defense. The Ukrainian people continue to inspire the world. I mean that sincerely. Not just inspire us, but inspire the world with their courage and how they uh, have chose their resilience and resolve for their future. Zelensky, for his part, thanked President Biden for his help. From my heart, from the hearts of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, from our nation, strong nations, all the appreciation to you, first of all, Mr. President, for your big support. Zelensky is set to address a joint meeting of Congress tonight as he appeals to Washington for additional aid to help repel Russia's now nearly 10-month-old invasion. One thing Ukrainian leader Zelensky has been looking for is additional military assistance, and it seems he is getting some of that. President Biden promising more aid that will include for the first time the Patriot Air Defense System. 
Here's Michelle Kellerman. The visit and the military aid announcement comes as Russia continues to attack critical infrastructure in Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Russia is trying to weaponize winter by freezing and starving Ukrainians. And he says the U.S. will continue to help Ukraine defend itself for, in his words, as long as it takes. Blinken says the Patriot Air Defense System is capable of bringing down cruise missiles, short-range ballistic missiles, and aircraft. The U.S. will train Ukrainians on how to use the system, which is part of a nearly $2 billion aid package being announced before the Ukrainian president addresses Congress. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Sleet, snow, and freezing rain are creating disruptions across the Pacific Northwest with forecasts predicting worsening weather. From Portland, Oregon, NPR's Cotty Riddle reports. Temperatures in Portland are expected to reach down into the teens in coming days. That's a rare occurrence in this city. The National Weather Service predicts Thursday morning will bring the coldest temperatures on record since 2014. Local officials declared a state of emergency in preparation and are opening warming shelters across the city. Portland has an unhoused population of more than 4,000. The storm comes as the city's emergency systems are already stressed. That includes hospitals, which are operating under crisis standards of care due to an influx of RSV, COVID, and flu cases. One county official warned in a statement on Wednesday that the expected conditions are, quote, legitimately life-threatening. Katie Riddle, NPR News, Portland. A pre-holiday boost on Wall Street today. The Dow up 526 points. The Nasdaq rose 162 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The winter storm affecting much of the middle part of the country is having an effect on travel at Logan Airport during this busy holiday travel stretch. According to the website FlightAware, there have already been nearly 150 flights at Logan delayed today. Three have been canceled. Travel is expected to get worse later this week. The National Weather Service is predicting wind gusts of up to 65 miles an hour across eastern Mass on Friday. Our forecast is coming up. President Joe Biden has signed a bill sponsored by Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch and Senator Ed Markey that honors four Americans killed in Benghazi, Libya. The September 11, 2012 terrorist attack against a U.S. diplomatic mission there killed Navy SEAL Glenn Doherty, whose mother and sister live in Winchester. Doherty and the other three men killed in the attack will be posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. That is the highest civilian honor bestowed by Congress. Several members of the state's congressional delegation are applauding the inclusion of money in a federal funding bill to support asylum seekers. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says the $800 million will help deliver resources to aid families that are fleeing humanitarian crises abroad. Congressman Bill Keating says while communities have risen to the challenge by welcoming and supporting migrants, the federal funds will ensure asylum seekers have access to the assistance they need. Lawmakers are expected to vote on the funding this week. Police throughout the state are reporting a string of mail thefts. Investigators say the thieves are stealing checks out of those blue postal service mailboxes. Marie Cleary is with the Wellesley Police Department. She says the crimes are unusual because the perpetrators are using keys to steal the mail. Previously, mail thieves would use devices that were sticky and physically fish letters and mail out of the mailboxes, and now they're simply opening the mailboxes. At this point, police have no suspects. They suggest people go to the post office to send mail inside instead of using the drop boxes. 
In the forecast, hope you enjoyed what was a beautiful day today, even if it was the shortest day of the year. Tonight, the longest night of the year. Ushers in clouds that will spend the day tomorrow, about 47 for a high tomorrow. Then tomorrow night, clouds let loose with rain, very strong winds. Friday, wild winds, soaking rain, high temperatures in the mid-50s. 37 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's tradition for modern American presidents to release their tax returns when taking office. But like many other times in his presidency, Donald Trump defied tradition. He refused. Well, yesterday, the House Ways and Means Committee voted along party lines to release Trump's tax returns to the public. The documents show, among other things, that while Trump paid $1.1 million and federal income taxes his first three years in office, he paid none in 2020. That is per a summary that the committee has released. The actual tax documents are expected in the coming days. I want to bring in Russ Butner, who has been following Trump's personal finances for The New York Times since 2016. Russ Butner, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'll note your team was ahead of the committee. You already had some of Donald Trump's tax records two years ago. So what new information are you learning so far from these new reports? Well, a couple of things really jump out. One is that the trends that we saw, which is that the businesses he controls tend to underperform and report huge losses each year. And the businesses that he has a benefit in, either because it's simple entertainment money um, or businesses that he's got a passive share in that someone else manages, those seem to do better and sort of help him support the businesses that he runs. Another one is that uh, the audit process that is supposed to apply to presidents just seems to have not worked at all in this situation. Okay, which I want to follow up on in a second. But first, let me just establish a little bit more what we're about to get our hands on and why. Because as I mentioned, what we have seen so far is a summary of the findings. Do we know timing on when the actual returns are going to drop? I think there's been some news out that they expect it to be tomorrow. Okay. And then we had heard earlier it could be Friday, so sometime in the next two days. And what time period are we talking in terms of the returns, like what years? Covers the, the tax years 2015 through 2020. Okay. And to the point you, you were making a moment ago, what we know already these returns show is the IRS failed to audit Trump during his presidency, something we would have expected. What has the IRS said? What more do we know about why that didn't happen? I don't think we know anything substantial at all. The IRS so far that I've seen has not commented on this. They haven't to us, the last I had heard. Um, And the the committee, um, they have tax professionals that are an important part of that committee's work. And they asked the IRS why they hadn't requested documentation, why they hadn't completed an audit. And the answers they got were disturbing. Uh, The answers were things like, these returns were submitted by a tax professional, so there's a presumption that everything is above board. Um, The amounts involved in this transaction you're asking about are just a few million dollars, not enough to substantially change the overall tax position. Those kind of things are very frustrating to the committee and seem a little bit like a fig leaf to hide behind for an agency that doesn't seem to be doing uh, what it's supposed to. Yeah. 
There's politics at stake here, of course. Democrats have argued for years that they needed to see these returns to help evaluate, among other things, um, the IRS's presidential audit program. Republicans have largely disagreed, saying this is all politics. What are the stakes? What is the value to the American public at this stage of knowing what's in these returns? It's a complicated question. It's an excellent question and a complicated one. You know, you're right. The timing is not favorable to coming up with a substantial report from this. With with um, Republicans about to take over in the House, you mean? Right. By the time Donald Trump almost ran out the clock, where the Supreme Court basically said the Treasury had to turn over these documents to the Congressional Committee, um, they, they didn't have any time to do the substantial work that they had said they wanted to do. But that said, there's still a possibility that after that, the Senate Finance Committee could pick this up. So once it's read into the congressional record, it becomes public, the Senate Finance Committee could, in theory, pick up the investigation into the same thing. Um, and uh, there's also a possibility that another Congress down the road could do that. Um, but it, it, there is a substantial problem here with the way our system just does not capture the vulnerabilities of sitting presidents if they have complicated finances. Well, and I suppose the obvious twist here is we are not talking solely about a former president, but about a man who's who's running again, who would like to be a future president. Right. And no matter what you think about whether his return should have been turned over to the American people or should be against his will, there's a chance we're going to encounter this situation again. And the country would be best served by a system that really addresses these issues up front. So we're not again in this situation where a president is saying one thing, not abiding by sort of traditions and norms and really can't be made to comply in real time with uh, any sort of effort at, at good government. Russ Butner, he's an investigative reporter for The New York Times. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary Louise. The recent uptick in migrants gathering at the U.S.-Mexico border is challenging El Paso city leaders as they wait to hear the outcome of the pandemic restriction known as Title 42. The measure had been scheduled to expire today, finally allowing people to apply for asylum instead of facing immediate expulsion. But on Monday, the Supreme Court issued a stay that keeps the order in place for now. Thousands have still been able to cross into El Paso, but thousands more are waiting just across the border to cross the moment that Title 42 lifts. Like Dorbis in Juarez, Mexico, he's 46 and asked us not to use his last name due to his immigration status. He made a three-month-long journey from Venezuela, and he plans to wait a few more days or even weeks to see if Title 42 will be lifted. I'll wait it out so I can ask God for everything to be okay and that they'll let us cross. And as others continue to enter El Paso, the city is trying to care for them. Let's hear the latest on the response from El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off just by asking you, what went through your head when you first learned that Title 42 was extended and whether that has changed anything about the city's emergency declaration plans? Well, what we're doing is we're, we're at going forward as if Title 42 had been lifted. You know, we need to make sure that we prepare for the unexpected. And, uh, and then that's what we're doing. We're, we've actually, uh, two schools that have been closed for a couple of years, we have uh, 
started we're starting to use them for sheltering we're converting our convention center into a shelter because you know one of the things that was really important to us the temperature started dropping and we didn't want to see uh, the asylum seekers sleeping outside sleeping and somebody you know losing their life that was not acceptable to us so when i decided to declare a state of emergency was to make sure that we protected our uh, visitors and also our community and it's uh really important to us that uh, we always continue to do the right thing. You've just alluded to that dangerously cold weather that's already coming in in many places across the country. You've talked about those temporary shelters at schools and the convention center there. To your knowledge, will those shelters be ready to house these people? Yes. As a matter of fact, the convention center will be open today. And and that's uh, and then the school, uh, one of the schools uh, should be open by Friday and the next one within 10 days. So we're preparing, and then we're also working, one of the things, it's not just the city, we're working with the county and the count and the diocese to continue to do shelter. And some of the churches are allowed to um, use as sheltering, and also we have uh, NGOs that work within the city. So the city, the county, the congresswoman, and our state senator, we all work together to make sure that we have one strong team. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said earlier today that the state's National Guard is setting up a blockade to stop people from entering El Paso. And you had wanted the National Guard to help with humanitarian needs and in shelters. So does what Abbott and the state are doing, does that run counter to your priorities? Well, our priority is just to make sure we, we treat people with respect and dignity. And that's been very important. And, uh, you know, one of the things we did ask the, the city would we declared a state of emergency. We asked for transportation. We, we asked for law enforcement for protection of both asylum seekers in the committee and the congested areas. <coughs> Excuse me, and then staffing to help us uh, with sheltering and distribution of meals. And that's what we asked for. Now, what you're talking about is basically the Lone Star program, which is uh, deployed by the governor. But the things we asked for is to make sure that we treat people properly. As I'm listening to you talk about the things that you hope to do, the ways that you hope, as you say, to treat people properly, to treat them with dignity, it raises a question for me about the financial implications of all of this. Is El Paso right now getting enough money or resources to pay for what the city needs to help migrants and residents? Well, it's not. The good thing is it's not on the back of El Paso taxpayers. We have been getting funding from the federal government and they have become good partners. We've been reimbursed 3.7 million that we use for transportation. We've been, re- we have been fronted $8 million from the federal government. And so has the county, the county has received reimbursement. But one thing that I can tell you today that uh, it's strictly a bandaid on a broken immigration system. And we can, can we cannot continue to, to go in this direction. We got to figure out uh, how they, it's not an El Paso, uh, Problem. It's really a problem in the United States, and now it's even get, getting bigger than the United States. So it's uh, we have to get the UN involved and all the countries around if we're going to be able to, to fix a broken immigration problem that's been fixed for 20, 30 years. In about the 30 seconds we have left, I'd like to ask you, what is your biggest concern in the coming days and weeks? What is it that you're watching? Well, I mean, our biggest concern is the unknown, and, and that's what we're preparing for is the unknown which is to make sure that we are prepared. And so when we were talking about the shelters, we're talking about food and uh, making sure that people are not on the street. And uh, helping people is also the most important thing to make sure that we're prepared for the unknown. All right, that's El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Happy holidays to you. You too. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, residents of one of the largest cities in Ukraine move their holiday celebrations underground to be safe from the missiles and artillery as the war continues. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. It was a strong day on Wall Street. Each of the the main indices picked up right about 1.5%. The Dow ended the day at 33,376. S&P closed at 3,878, and the Nasdaq finished at 10,709. A local public interest group is applauding commitments by Office Max and Office Depot to reduce their plastic packaging waste over the next five years. The parent company of the office supply stores is aiming for a 20% reduction in plastic waste by 2027. Boston-based Massburg calls it a major step forward toward getting zero waste. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It is now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving. In Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. Tonight at 7.30, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to address Congress during a trip aimed at underscoring U.S. support for the country as Russia's war against it drags on. Hear his address at 7.30 live on 90.9 WBUR. And tomorrow on All Things Considered, former Only a Game host Bill Littlefield on his new novel, especially fitting for the season, the subject, Mercy. It's 5.20. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Next up, how the brain keeps track of time and how it often doesn't. As part of our series called Finding Time, NPR's John Hamilton reports on some very special neurons. They're called time cells, and they help us organize our memories of events and experiences could be something big, like meeting your true love, or something small, like hearing a distinctive sound. Mark Howard of Boston University says a simple clap of your hands can cause time cells to begin a highly orchestrated performance. What we find is that the cells fire in a sequence, right? So cell one might fire right immediately after the clap, but cell two waits a little bit and only fires a little later, and cell three and cell four and so on. Each cell places a sort of timestamp on an experience. Let's say you brew a pot of coffee. Time cells keep track of the sequence, grind, drip, pour. Howard says the cells fire in that order, both when a memory is being made and again when it is retrieved. If I remember 
being in my kitchen and making a cup of coffee, the time cells that led up to that moment, the time cells that were active at that moment, are reactivated. In the same sequence. That's why our minds can travel back in time and play mental movies of our life experiences. But time cells, despite their name, do not behave like a clock or a metronome. At the beginning of any new experience, these cells fire like popcorn hitting hot oil. That creates lots of timestamps, but Howard says as seconds pass, the firing becomes less and less frequent. The sequence doesn't unfold at the same rate. The sequence unfolds slower and slower and slower. In effect, your ability to distinguish time decreases as things get further into the past. So we're not very reliable when it comes to estimating how long an experience lasted. Networks of time cells can even stretch or compress time. Howard thinks that's how we're able to recognize a word even when it's spoken very slowly. If I say the word seven, you can recognize that as seven perfectly well because the relative shape of the syllables is the same and this network generalizes to things that are faster or slower than it was trained on. Of course, time cells don't work alone. Dr. Yuri Bujaki of New York University says they're just one part of the brain system for organizing what scientists call episodic memories. Which is our personal egocentric memories, what happened to me, where and when. As opposed to semantic memories, like the name of your friend's pet ferret. Time cells keep track of the when in an episodic memory. Meanwhile, cells called place cells keep track of where you were when it occurred. Both types of cells were first discovered in the hippocampus, an area of the brain involved in both memory and navigation. But Bujaki says time cells don't live up to their label. He says they can act like place cells if the brain is paying attention to where instead of when. We had a paper in Science where we showed that 100% of neurons can be place cells if you want, and 100% of them can be time cells depending on how you set up the experiment. So it makes sense that people often use time and distance interchangeably. Ask someone how far it is to the next town, and they may say 10 miles or a 10-minute drive. Bujaki says there's a more cosmic problem with the very notion of time cells. The brain doesn't generate time. Also, the brain cannot sense time because it's immaterial. It doesn't really matter to the brain. What does matter is the sequence of events. You need to remember that you heard a snake's rattle before you felt its fangs. The elapsed time of the whole experience is less important. And precise clock time is something we impose on our brains with technology. Hundreds of years ago, that could have been a bell controlled by a mechanical clock. Now, Bujaki says, our brains are inundated with time signals. Humans have alarm clocks, they have uh, iPhones, they've got all sorts of gadgets that makes it possible to coordinate events of life. With a precision that our brains and our time cells could never match on their own. John Hamilton, NPR News. Ukrainians are marking their first winter holiday season at war, and despite the constant threat of missiles and artillery, they're finding a way to celebrate. NPR's Joanna Kakesa sends us this postcard from Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. Kharkiv's main square is quiet this December. There are no lights or Christmas tree or the pop-up skating rink that 17-year-old Daniel Prokopenko loves so much. That would have all been really nice, he says. But this year we have found our own way to celebrate. He walks into a subway station past a young man busking for coins 
and down the stairs to the platform. Few people here are actually getting on the train. Most gather around a tall Christmas tree decorated with incandescent white bulbs and a white star. Next to it is a small hut with a mailbox where children can drop off letters to Grandfather Frost, who is like the Slavic version of Santa Claus. This is Kharkiv's wartime Christmas village. It officially opened earlier this week in an elegant subway platform that doubles as a bomb shelter. Nine-year-old Maxim Pushnir sheltered for weeks in Kharkiv's subway this spring when the bombing was especially bad. He drops a letter with his Christmas list into Grandfather Frost's mailbox. What do you want for Christmas this year? PlayStation 5 and Miru. Mir. That means peace. Every child we speak to asks for peace, including five-year-old Ava Minseva. And she adds, maybe a phone to take pictures. Outside, it's getting dark and it's cold. Here we find 27-year-old Kostyantin Novikov changing into his grandfather Frost costume. Is this the first time you've put on the outfit since last year? Yes, first time this year. The costume is bright red, like Santa's suit, but with frilly sleeves and a long cape. So you've got these big red boots. Wow, look at that cape. <laughs> no, that's quite a cape. Novikov is an actor who's been playing Grandfather Frost for five years. He works for weeks from the Western Christmas on December 25th through to the Orthodox Christmas on January 7th. He says that since the Russian invasion, Grandfather Frost has become controversial because of the character's roots in Russian folklore. Growing up, I never considered him Russian, Novikov says. Just a fairy tale character. As if on cue, a young mother named Irina Kochalka shouts for joy when her four-year-old daughter Emma spots Novikov as Grandfather Frost. Well, we, we have just sent letter to Father Frost, you know, but there was no one in, the, in his hut, and here we are so happy to see him here outside. Emma whispers to Grandfather Frost that she's hoping for a big, fluffy white cat toy. And, pretty please, for her daddy, a soldier, to come home soon. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kharkiv. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Today is the winter solstice, and from here on out, brighter days are ahead, literally. Tonight, the longest night of the year, nice clear skies to start, but clouds will soon be on the march in. Low temperatures about 28, so pretty chilly tonight. Then tomorrow, more clouds, temperatures rising to the mid-40s. Tomorrow night, rain in a big way and strong winds, and that sets the scene for a stormy day on Friday. Soaking rains, extremely high winds likely to bring down trees and power lines, warming Friday to the mid-50s. 37 degrees now in Boston at 530. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. The British actor Naomi Ackie has the starring role in new biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody. I don't look like Whitney. I don't sound like Whitney. I'm not a singer. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of things that I, I kind of had to fill the gaps for. How she reflects the life and the talents of the late Whitney Houston for the screen. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is paying a defiant wartime visit to Washington to thank President Biden and congressional leaders for their support in fighting off Russia's invasion. Biden says Russia won't stop, especially during the cold winter, and that the U.S. will continue supporting Ukraine. And he announced a new security package. $1.85 billion package of security assistance and includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs as well as contracts to supply ammunition Ukraine will need in the months ahead for its artillery, its tanks, and its rocket launchers. This is Congress considers the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that will keep the U.S. government open through September, and it includes another $45 billion in aid for Ukraine. Zelensky will address a joint meeting of Congress this evening. And as Congress prepares for the last minute address by Zelensky, the House panel investigating the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th says it's pushing back the release of its final report until tomorrow. Much of the nation will be in the grip of biting winds and freezing temperatures later this week. Paulo Chalcida from Colorado Public Radio reports the state is getting ready. Governor Jared Polis has activated more than 100 Colorado National Guard members to help with extreme cold weather operations. For urban parts of the state, the forecast is for the coldest weather in 30 years. National Weather Service meteorologist Russell Danielson says wind will intensify extremely dangerous conditions. If the winds are 30 miles an hour, the wind chill would be somewhere around negative 35. The Weather Service says some 190 million Americans are under weather advisories due to the bitter cold and in some places, blizzard conditions. For NPR News, I'm Paolo Shalsada in Denver. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts has issued a set of goals and a blueprint to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Today, the state released a clean energy and climate plan that calls for challenges or changes, that is, to transportation, buildings and the energy grid. WBUR's Paula Mora has more. The plan sets benchmarks for many sectors, including transportation. It aims for most cars to be electric by 2050. Beth Card is the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs. Massachusetts will continue to support consumers by offering incentives, including point-of-sale rebates for electric vehicle purchases and by investing in charging infrastructure. Card says the goal is to reduce the state's emissions by at least 85 percent below 1990 levels. The remaining carbon would be offset by natural lands like forests. For 90.9, WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. 
A former fencing coach at Harvard has been acquitted of charges that he accepted bribes to help get two sons of a wealthy businessman into the school. Peter Bryant was accused of taking more than $1.5 million in exchange for designating the man's sons as recruits. Jurors today found him not guilty of conspiracy and bribery charges. The Maryland businessman Jack Zhao was also found not guilty of the same charges. Their attorneys argued the payments were a loan between good friends. Tickets for the inaugural celebration of Governor-elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll are now on sale. Moving the ball forward is the theme of the celebration. It's going to be held at the TD Garden at 5 o'clock January 5th. The theme's title is a nod to Healy and Driscoll's time as college basketball players. Healy also paid, played professionally. She says the inaugural celebration will be about looking to the future and engaging directly with people all across the state. Today is the winter solstice. That means it was the shortest day of the year in Massachusetts. From this point on, the days will be getting longer and brighter. Stephen Schneider is an astronomy professor at UMass Amherst. He says this is a good time to get outside and reconnect with the environment. It's something we've lost in our modern culture that we don't connect to what's happening. And, and just coming back to a site and making a point of looking at all the things that are happening gives you a real sense of the changing seasons, the the way the sky and the, the sun and the moon are changing over time. The sun set in Boston today at 4.15. For tonight, clouds eventually move in. Temperatures about 28. Tomorrow, gray and milder in the mid-40s. Clouds open up. Rain soaks us tomorrow night and Friday. Maybe one to two inches of rain falling on Friday. Powerful and dangerous winds both Thursday night and Friday as well. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd. This film is rated R. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After 18 months, more than a thousand interviews, this week the House January 6th committee is expected to release its final report. It'll take time to read through it all. We do, of course, already know the committee has voted to issue criminal referrals against former President Trump. Four recommended charges of obstruction or conspiracy or participating in an insurrection. To discuss the impact on the former president and the GOP more broadly, we called Fred Upton. He's an outgoing Republican congressman from Michigan, one of 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Trump after January 6th. And I began by asking him about the damage this report might do to the former president. Well, I think it already has damaged him. Right after January 6th, and of course I witnessed it firsthand, in his words, he said he did everything in quotes here totally appropriate. I didn't think that he did. I watched his speech on TV that day as he, as he riled up the crowd. Obviously, I saw them when they came up to, to Capitol Hill as well. But he didn't do everything totally appropriate. And, you know, particularly now with the evidence that's been submitted in this report that I look forward to reading. Yeah, he's he's been damaged pretty good, but he's not backed off from that. So I hear you saying, Congressman, you feel this has been a valuable exercise, that it has been important, the work of this committee. It absolutely has been. And without it, 
much of this never would have been made public. It never would have seen the light of day. So we needed the transparency, particularly knowing that I'm one that believes that we came within minutes of having a massacre on the House floor. The members that were there that were trapped, if those doors had been breached like they were in the Senate, I think you would have seen some mass casualties that would have occurred and, and uh, would have made a terrible day much, much worse. Of course, yeah. As you know, many in your party do do not see things that way. They have downplayed this committee, its investigation, called it a witch hunt and other things. To what extent are your fellow Republican lawmakers open to this report, to to its findings? Well, I don't know yet. We're, we haven't had any votes this week yet. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some chatter in the next uh, 24, 48 hours as we try to wrap up this Congress. But, you know, the work's done. The report is out there. We'll all take time over the next week or so, I'm sure, to, to review it, read the summary. But it's been, you know, the football's been passed along now to the Justice Department, so we don't really have a role yet. Of course, we've got a new Congress. We've got 80 new members. But all along, you know, the footage that they've showed, the witnesses, particularly from the Trump administration, uh, folks that, you know, ultimately came and, and spoke the truth. I mean, one of the issues that I had dating back to the beginning was, where were these guys when we were having the tough vote on this? I mean, 10 of us uh, on the Republican side walked the plank to say it was wrong, it needs to be impeached. But where were they then? Where were some of these folks then saying, Oh, they were right. I mean, whether it be cabinet members or senior members of the administration, it was crickets. I mentioned you're retiring after, what, 35 years in the House? 36. 36 yes. years in the House. Yep. May I just ask plainly, do you think you would be speaking this candidly if you weren't retiring, if you had another election in your future? Yeah, I would. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I didn't make the decision not to run until spring. I had already cast my vote for impeachment. I had already cast my vote for the January 6th commission. I was on record at saying that the president's tax records uh, ought to be made public, as he said himself when he was a candidate six years ago. So, you know, I've always been a straight shooter. Uh, I learned that from Ronald Reagan working at the White House, uh, where I first said no to running for Congress. And a couple months later, folks uh, convinced me to run. And I thought I'd be there only 10 years, and you know it's been a wonderful journey. Been blessed with great staff and a, and a very swing district. But yeah, I would, I would, <laughs> I have no regrets, no regrets. That's a, that's an incredible thing after more than three decades in the place. I will note, I saw, um, I saw where you said recently that Congress is more toxic than ever before. This place oh, is more toxic yep. than ever before. I saw you receive death threats just for voting for the infrastructure bill last year. Yep. How would you describe the atmosphere in Congress compared to when you first arrived back in the 80s? Um, is it still possible to do what you came to Congress to do? I sure hope so. And the challenges are going to be enormous in this next Congress. You know, we have a divided government. 51-49 in the Senate, uh, just a handful of votes uh, difference uh, in, the, in the House. Uh, and we have, as they say in every presidential election, the most important election in our lifetime. <laughs> it's true. It's coming up in 24. It's going to succeed, uh, you know, 20 and 16. And all these different issues that we have today, 
uh, are so important to deal with. Immigration reform, my goodness. I mean, there's a, there's ought to be a sweet spot that we can get things done. And that's where, you know, the Problem Solvers Caucus, a place where I've been a vice chair, bipartisan group of currently 58 members, would be a little smaller in the next Congress, could make a difference. But it's more toxic, for sure, than ever before. We've been speaking with Fred Upton, Republican congressman from Michigan. For a few days more, Congressman, thank you so much. You bet. Thanks. After weeks of trading verbal barbs, tensions between Peru and Mexico have come to a head with Peru expelling the Mexican ambassador. The squabble has left Mexico firmly on the side of a growing leftist wave in Latin America. NPR's Ader Peralta reports. Earlier this month and right before an impeachment vote, Peru's leftist president Pedro Castillo tried to consolidate power by dissolving the Congress. Instead, Congress voted to oust him. And as Castillo fled toward the Mexican embassy, his bodyguards arrested him. Ever since, Mexico and the other leftist governments in Latin America, including Cuba, Bolivia, and Venezuela, have stood with Castillo, calling his ouster, quote, an anti-democratic harassment. Mexico went further. They offered Castillo and his family asylum. The new government of Peru accused Mexico of meddling in its internal affairs, and they declared the Mexican ambassador persona non grata. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has often touted his country's non-intervention policy, but back in 2019, Mexico offered asylum to ousted Bolivian President Evo Morales. In a press briefing, López Obrador said ousting Peru's Castillo was wrong. He criticized the U.S. for quickly accepting the ouster, and he staked a clear side in Latin America's growing left-right divide. Sabemos distinguir muy bien entre lo que es el pueblo de Perú y la actitud de la llamada clase política. Mexico can distinguish between the people of Peru and the political class, he said, and the oligarchy, which the U.S. has sided with, is intent on silencing the poor people of Peru. Early on Wednesday morning, Castillo's wife, who is facing a corruption investigation, and his two children arrived in Mexico City. They were received by Mexican foreign ministry officials who insisted Mexico was just doing what it has always done, quote, saving lives across Latin America. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Mexico City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A brutal winter storm is on the way and expected to impact much of the eastern half of the country. The National Weather Service expects life-threatening wind chills for millions of Americans and possible blizzard conditions in the Midwest. Well, here to tell us more about the storm and how to stay safe this holiday season when it is really cold outside is National Weather Service meteorologist Eric Ahasik. Welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. I just said a blizzard is coming to the Midwest. I'm seeing some forecasts talking about how that could turn into a bomb cyclone. Would you just lay out what is the National Weather Service forecast and what's it going to mean? Yeah. So in the Dakotas, Minnesota area, uh, we're going to see wind chills as low as minus 40 to minus 50. Wow. Um, As that Arctic air moves east, right, we'll see wind chills minus 20 to minus 30 over much of the Midwest Great Lakes area. But um. We did see wind chills at zero or even below zero as far south as 
deep into Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, which is not not typical for those parts of the country. Eric, I'm told you are, aside from your your main gig as a meteorologist, you're also a Jeopardy champ. I am a Jeopardy champion as well. Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, I will put you on the spot then. Congratulations, by the way. Thank <laughs> I'll, you. I'll put you on the spot and ask, wind chill of, of those temperatures, negative 40, negative 50, how quickly can a person get frostbite? Right. So that's the real hazard with these wind chills is when it's windy, it makes the cold even worse for your body. And mm-hmm. so when we're talking wind chills of minus 40 to minus 50, any exposed skin can get starting frostbite in as little as 10 minutes. You just need to make sure that all of any exposed skin is covered, dressed in layers, limit your time outside if possible. Um, because yeah, like mine, 10 minutes or so in the upper Midwest and even parts of the South that, you know, really aren't prepared for wind chills as cold. It, you know, it won't be the life-threatening wind chills that we're going to see up in Minnesota, the Dakotas, but certainly health uh, hazards are possible. Okay, so you're saying don't go outside if you don't have to. If you have to, cover up, your gloves, hat, all the rest. Um, other just common sense precautions people may not be thinking about um, as they prepare for this cold. If you have pets and livestock, um, you know, that you typically, you know, keep outside, you know, it's cold for them as well. So if you're able to try to, you know, bring them into a warm place, that's that's ideal. If you're in a part of the country that'll be seeing the winter storm warnings or the blizzard warnings from the snowy part of the system, ideally you're just not traveling at all during the times those advisories and warnings are in effect. Uh, please follow your local national weather service or local news station for the latest or information on those. Otherwise, you know, we still have a few days before you know Christmas and, and the holidays really begin. So if you can change your travel plans, maybe leave before the worst conditions or leave after the worst conditions, you know, there's still some time to be flexible on that. Just you really want to avoid trying to be on the roads during the heart of this system, especially in parts of the Midwest and, uh, and Northern Plains, because we are going to see really rough conditions um, for mostly Thursday and Friday for Uh, Midwest and upper Midwest, and then Friday, Saturday for um, those lake defense snow regions of the Great Lakes. Eric Hasek, he is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service, talking to us from Minnesota's Twin Cities. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. No real cold weather headed to the Boston area, just really wet. Tonight, the longest night of the year, clear skies to start, but then clouds will soon be moving in. Temperatures about 28, so pretty chilly. Then tomorrow, more clouds, temperatures rising to the mid-40s. Tomorrow night, rain in a big way, strong winds. That sets the scene for a pretty stormy wet day Friday. Soaking rains, extremely high winds, could bring down some power lines and trees warming to the mid-50s on Friday. And then on Saturday, sunshine, but temperatures in the 20s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. 
Coming up on WBUR, the directors of the new documentary Wildcat about a couple trying to rehabilitate orphaned ocelots in the Amazon rainforest. And tomorrow on All Things Considered, former WBUR only a game host Bill Littlefield. He's got a new novel out about people living in a leafy green Boston suburb. Their lives appear pretty nice, but there's a but. They all either had achieved or needed to achieve forgiveness and mercy, and they had to be uh, in some way comforted. Bill Littlefield on his new novel, Mercy, tomorrow on All Things Considered. Electric vehicles are coming to West Tennessee. There's never been this size and scale of a private investment in this kind of a remote rural area. I'm Kyle Rizdahl getting Ford's new EV plant up and running. That story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street, of course, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When British Army veteran Harry Turner left the service, he was suffering from what he called recurrent depression and PTSD. He had been medically discharged from the Army, and he says he traveled to the Amazon jungle at first out of desperation. After Afghanistan, I struggled so badly. I felt that life wasn't worth living. And maybe I should just pack up all of my things and just go where no one knows where I am, no one knows if I'm alive, no one knows if I'm dead. But what the Amazon presented to Harry was a totally different path. He gets to know a conservationist named Samantha Zwicker, and together they help each other heal from past traumas while protecting the forest and rescuing wildlife, including an orphaned baby ocelot named Keanu. They film their efforts meticulously, and then one day they meet Melissa Lesh and Trevor Beck Frost, who helped turn that footage into a documentary called Wildcat. And as they made it, they realized just how similar Harry and Keanu were. When, when it really dawned on us that Harry was going to have to leave at some point, we started thinking about this sort of weird um, connection between the two of them, where Harry is you know, trying to take this ocelot and put it back into the wild. He's trying to work with Keanu to put it back into the wild. And then at the same time, when he's done with that, he has to figure out how to reintegrate into society. That moment, I mean, I was watching that inevitable moment when Keanu needs to make that clean break from Harry to go out on his own into the wild, survive by himself. And I could see how Keanu, he wasn't the only one struggling with that separation. Can you talk about that piece of this, like what the separation meant for both of them? So at that time, you know, Keanu was reaching the point where naturally in the wild, he would be going off on his on his own and his mother would be kind of severing that bond with him. Right. So for Harry, it was very much a learning process and figuring out, you know, at what point and in what way do you start to break that bond? Um, and with Samantha as well, it was you know, a learning process. Um, Cause at that point, you know, their relationship was so, uh, they had such a deep connection um, and they had, where they were so much a part of each other's lives that it was hard for Keanu to really let go. And equally it was hard for Harry to be able to let go and their survival and their well being were in some ways dependent on each other. Um, and so, you know, learning from that and seeing that reality, Samantha's now 
figured out with their new reintroductions of the ocelots, how can we start to, you know, have that transition happen a little bit sooner so mm-hmm. that it is both, you know, easier for the cats and also for the re- rehab rehabilitators. Um, so a lot of their process now is, is a more distant uh, process of reintroduction. They have larger enclosures. They let prey species come underneath to simulate kind of natural hunting environments. And so as kind of as difficult as it is, is in some ways, they also want to have less interaction to allow yeah. that bond to be broken sooner. But going back to the relationship between Harry and Keanu, I mean, obviously Keanu needed Harry to teach him how to survive as a wild cat, even though Harry was human. But in so many ways, it felt like Harry, it was a codependent relationship, right? Like Harry needed Keanu to get through or to cope with some of his own mental health struggles in this film. Yeah, I mean, Keanu was a sense of purpose, you know, and I think that's something that a lot of people can identify with. I mean, speaking personally, I, I've struggled with depression and anxiety for, for 10 years now, and I have a very different relationship with my depression and my anxiety than I did before making this film. But one of the things that we did during the process of making this film is we brought home our own cats, uh, cats from a, a local shelter, domesticated cats. And they completely changed my life because all of a sudden, every day that I woke up, I had something that I needed to, to, to take care of, something that relied on mm-hmm. me. And that's provided mm-hmm. me with this, you know, enormous uh, sense of purpose every single day. And and, I, and it's really helped me a, a lot, you know. And, and so I think with Harry, that was amplified times 100 um, because yeah. he had gone through so so much trauma so early in his life, and he he was a very sensitive person at, at his core, and so yeah, Keanu was 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 really like a, a lifeline for Harry. I mean, this was truly a second chance that that he felt and Samantha felt could not be messed up, and and so we see this true codependency as as unhealthy as codependency is. We that was is exactly what it was. Yeah, Trevor, you mentioned that you have struggled with depression and anxiety yourself did did following harry's story and frankly being a part of harry's story in some ways help you think about your own mental health challenges differently yeah absolutely so you know i I always say that before making this film i really only viewed my depression and anxiety as a negative i i thought it was just something that i wanted to go away and and don't get me wrong if if there's a cure um, I would be in line f- for that, no doubt. But I think one of the things that, that happened to me through the process of making this film and, and, and watching Harry and Samantha, I realized that what they accomplished in putting these cats and, and many other animals back into the wild and building this this remarkable you know, conservation and rescue center in the, in the Amazon was that they accomplished so much of this as a result of everything that they had been through. And, and so I guess after making this film, I now, you know, strive to ask myself every single day, what are the positives in having depression and anxiety? Does it allow me to see the world differently? And and I think that absolutely it does. You know, I think that if there's somebody that doesn't struggle with depression, they're not going to see the world the same way that I do. And 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 I and so now I really start to see the you know the strengths in that. And I think that. That's how I changed through the process of making the film. And tell us, where are Samantha Zwicker and Harry Turner now? What are they up to? Yeah, Sam, she is running Ojanueva, her nonprofit organization, with a new partner. Um, They have ramped up their operations on the ground uh, incredibly. 
And now they've actually just rescued their first jaguar. Um, So Mm. that's their first big cat and a new challenge, probably their greatest challenge yet. And Harry, we're excited to say that he's he's doing really well. You know, I think during the making of this film, we were deeply concerned about him. And now that's not the case. You know, I think there were things that, you know, he's been dealing with and grappling with that he will probably always be dealing with. Um, But he's got a much stronger foundation now. And it's really, it's powerful to see how this film has contributed to that. Um, He is now engaged and starting a new nonprofit with his fiance Mm -hmm. and continuing to do conservation work. Melissa Lesh and Trevor Beck Frost. Their new film, Wildcat, is in theaters now and will be streaming on Amazon December 30th. Thank you both so much. Thank you so so much much for having us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about human connection and the magic of cinema. Now playing in select theaters. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is WBUR for tonight. Cloudy skies eventually. Lows about 28. Tomorrow, gray and milder in the mid-40s. Clouds open up, let loose with rain tomorrow night and Friday. Could have one to two inches of rain on Friday. Some dangerous winds both tomorrow night and Friday. Looking for the perfect holiday gift? Go to WBUR City Space for winter season tickets at WBUR.org slash events. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mr. Zelensky comes to Washington. The president of Ukraine makes his first trip abroad since Russia invaded his country 10 months ago. President Biden says the U.S. will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, December 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more than a dozen governors, all Republicans, have moved to ban the social media app TikTok from government devices. What they're trying to do is is make sure ByteDance, the Chinese parent company that owns TikTok, won't have political control for Beijing over their states. The state's take on TikTok coming up. And remember the NFL player known for the most iconic catch in pro football, the Immaculate Reception. Pittsburgh Steelers running back Franco Harris has died at the age of 72. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
Saying he has never seen NATO more united, President Biden today welcomed Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky to the White House. Zelensky making the visit to Washington as he leaves his country for the first time since Russia's invasion nearly 10 months ago. Speaking at a joint news conference today, Biden praised Ukraine for standing up to Russia's aggression. Ukraine has won the Battle of Kiev, has won the Battle of Kherson, has won the Battle of Kharkiv. Ukraine has defied Russia's expectations at every single turn. And speaking through an interpreter, the Ukrainian president said his trip comes at a historic moment in the relationship between the two countries. I came here to the United States to uh, forward the thank, the word of thanks to the people of America, people who do so much for Ukraine. I am thankful for all of this. Zelensky addresses a joint meeting of Congress later tonight as he seeks more military military aid to repel Russia's invasion. Meanwhile, with the insurance to his Zulensky of, among other things, U.S. Patriot missiles, he has already achieved a key goal of his trip. From Kiev, NPR's Julian Haidar reports those American weapons could change Ukraine's strategy on the battlefield. Before Zelensky even touched down in Washington, he already knew his big ask from the trip would be approved. Zelensky will be flying back home with a promise of $1.85 billion worth of military assistance, and with it, something his Air Force has been wanting for months, Patriot missiles. Speaking to Radio Free Europe, the spokesman for Ukraine's air defense, Yuri Ignat, said that Patriots have twice the range of other rockets Ukraine relies on. Russian aviation remains the biggest threat against Ukraine, he says, and Ukraine needs more deterrence, like the Patriot missile. He said it wouldn't be a game-changer, but that it would allow Ukraine to move more effectively onto the counteroffensive. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Existing home sales fell more than 7% last month. That's according to new data released from the National Association of Realtors. NPR's Arizo Rizvani has more. The November slump marks the 10th straight month of declines. Home sales are down 35% compared to a year ago. Lawrence Yoon, chief economist with the National Association of Realtors, attributes the decline to rapidly climbing interest rates and says the housing market is now in a recession. We are seeing the realtors getting far fewer commission income because of lower sales activity uh, in the mortgage industry. They are laying off quite a large number of people because of the lack of refinance business. Sales have slowed to a pace not seen since 2010 when the country was in a recession or the early days of the pandemic lockdown in 2020. Despite the slump, home prices have remained steady, largely because inventory remains low. Arzu Rizvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Stocks close higher today. The Dow up 526 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is preparing for Friday's storm. Agency spokesperson Christian Cunney says the heaviest rain and strongest winds will start about 2 a.m. Friday and stick around through Friday afternoon. Parts of Massachusetts could get wind gusts of up to 65 miles per hour, especially on the North Shore and in southeastern parts of the state. Residents should also prepare for coastal flooding and rainfall amounts of up to two inches. Charge your your devices, um, test your generators, uh, and and please do that outside of your house or garage. Um, We recommend folks clean out storm drains to to prevent cooling and, and flooding of rainwater. Uh, and test those sump pumps if you have them. Cunny says falling temperatures later in the day Friday could also make for some slippery roads. If you're flying out of Logan Airport in the next few days, you'll have plenty of company. 
With the bad weather heading our way, many airlines are waiving change fees for flights set to depart during the storm. Passport Director of Aviation Ed Frenny told us earlier that that is making today and tomorrow even busier than expected. So people are trying to get out a little bit earlier if there are seats available. So it will be, we had a very busy morning this morning. We'll have a busy afternoon today. Uh, all day tomorrow, Thursday, and right into Friday. He says about 1.2 million people are expected to fly in and out of Logan over the next week or so. He says that's on par with the number of passengers who use the airport at Thanksgiving. While the storm is headed our way, it's already hitting other parts of the country, and that has caused more than 150 delays and four cancellations out of Logan today. The union that represents state police troopers is fighting to get seven troopers reinstated. They were suspended without pay following a 20 2021 governor's mandate that requires executive office employees be fully vaccinated against COVID or have approved medical or religious exemptions. The union and the state entered a second day of arbitration today. And U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren has reintroduced legislation aimed at ending gun violence in America. The bill would create a federal gun licensing system, strengthen background checks, and ban military-style assault weapons. She filed another version of the bill in 2020. Federal data show nearly 49,000 people lost their lives to gun violence last year. In the forecast, 37 degrees now, the longest night of the night tonight, of the night of the year tonight. Ushers and clouds that should spend the day tomorrow, about 47 degrees for a high. Tomorrow night, drenching rain, very strong winds. Then Friday, wild winds again, and more rain could have one to two inches on Friday, with high temperatures in the mid-50s, sunny and colder on Saturday. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 300 days after Russia invaded Ukraine, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, has left his country for the first time since war began. He has traveled to shore up support from a key ally, the United States of America. We understand in our bones that Ukraine's fight is part of something much bigger. President Biden met with Zelensky this afternoon at the White House. Both leaders spoke with reporters afterwards. Tonight, President Zelensky will address a joint meeting of Congress. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid, diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman, and Tim Mack in Ukraine are here to brief us. Asma, you kick us off. What was the main message we heard from these two leaders today at the White House? Well, I would say the main message was about showing solidarity in the face of Russia's attacks this winter, but it was also clearly about showing bipartisan support here at home for the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, In his remarks this afternoon, President Biden made it clear multiple times, in fact, that the United States will continue to aid Ukraine for as long as this war takes. As we head into the new year, it's important for the American people and for the world to hear directly from you, Mr. President, about Ukraine's fight and the need to continue to stand together through 2023. And this message comes as some polls have shown that some Americans are questioning the large sums of money being sent to Ukraine with really no end to the war in sight right now. Tim, you are there in the thick of it. You're watching from Odessa, Ukraine. One of the big questions has been, what does Zelensky, on behalf of his people, but what does he see as a way to end the war? And he actually brought up this today, this notion of a, quote, just peace. What did he say? 
Well, he was talking about what the conditions for a just peace might involve, and he said it would include the ability to maintain sovereignty and territorial integrity and freedom for his country. And these are things that could take some time to achieve. He spoke about how the longer this goes on, the more injustice occurs, the more people would be motivated by thoughts of revenge. And you know, this really fits with the conversations I've had with Ukrainians over the past year. When the war initially started, there, were a, there was a lot of hope that the war could end in a matter of months. But following revelations of atrocities in uh, formerly Russian-held territories and the long, drawn-out violence that has taken place over the past 10 months, there are many, many more who think Ukraine should not seek peace until it gets back all its territory, all the things that they think Ukraine deserves. And in a lot of my conversations in Ukraine this past Last week, I found myself talking with a number of people who thought this war could go on now for years. For years. Well, that brings us to diplomacy. Michelle, the U.S. is leading the allies, leading the coalition, supporting Ukraine. What was Biden's message about that role for America? Well, President Biden and his administration have been careful throughout this war not to push Zelensky into offering concessions to Russia, and and Biden was talking about that again today. Um, They say that Russia has shown no signs that it's interested in peace. Even today in Moscow, Vladimir Putin was telling his top brass that he's going to give the army everything it needs with no financial limits to win. Um, And But President Biden points out that the war is taking a toll on Russia. He said Putin thought he could weaken NATO, but NATO is stronger. He said um, Putin thought he would win this war quickly, but now we're 300 days in. And the U.S. and its partners are still pouring in military equipment and aid into Ukraine, in part to help um, Zelensky to put him in the best possible position if and when peace talks are possible. Speaking of pouring in aid, there were some specifics announced today, new aid that the U.S. is providing Ukraine. Do you have details, Michelle? Yeah, it's another nearly $2 billion in military aid, and it includes a new capability for the Ukrainians that is um, a Patriot missile battery. Um, President Zelensky said that's going to significantly strengthen Ukraine's air defenses, which is really key as Russia bombards uh, critical infrastructure across the country. And he doesn't want just one. He said he wants more. Um, The U.S. still needs to train Ukrainians on how to use the system, and Biden says that's going to take some time. Okay, let's turn to how the rest of today is going to unfold. Osma Zelensky, as we mentioned, he's headed to Capitol Hill. He's going to address the U.S. Congress tonight. What are the stakes for him? Well, Congress is working this week to finalize a big spending bill that includes $45 billion of new aid money for Ukraine. You know, this comes on top of the billions that we've been discussing throughout this conversation. And, and, And I will say Zelensky was not shy about suggesting that his country will need even more military assistance. Uh, He did make a point, though, in his remarks earlier today, saying that he believes aid will continue to flow to Ukraine, even in a new Congress where Republicans will control the House. Uh, You know, Mary Louisa, the reality is that this bipartisan support has already begun to show cracks. The GOP leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, has said his party will not write a blank check for Ukraine. And, you know, this is noteworthy because McCarthy is likely to become Speaker of the House next month. But, you know, a personal plea from Zelensky could be seen as a way to shift the dynamic. It'll be really interesting to see how his message goes down as we watch the faces of all the lawmakers gathered tonight. Um, Tim Mack, we'll give you last words since you were there in Ukraine. Just give us a little bit more of a picture of how Ukrainians might be taking 
in this moment with everything they are going through and watching for the first time their president uh, outside Ukraine, first time since February 24th. Yeah, well, they're following it very closely, but it's kind of worth keeping in mind what many Ukrainians are facing today. Many of them will not be able to watch Zelensky's speech to Congress, even if they wanted to. And that's due to Russian strikes against electrical infrastructure all across the, the country. Um, millions of people in places like Kharkiv and Kiev and in Odessa, where I am right now, they're without electricity and without uh, internet connections water and heat just as temperatures are hovering around the freezing point and we get into this deepest part of winter. It's also worth noting what Zelensky's decision to travel outside of Ukraine says about his thinking regarding the stability of his government Mm -hmm. and the situation of his country at war. I mean, 10 months ago, his allies in the U.S. were urging him to leave Kiev when the war began, and he insisted on staying. So his decision to leave tells us that he has some comfort in uh, in the stability of his government, and he's not as worried about Russians' capability to undermine him or the Ukrainian that military. That were in a in different phase of this war. All right. NPR's Tim Mack in Odessa, NPR correspondents Michelle Kellerman and Asma Khalid in Washington. We're all going to be listening tonight, and we will be bringing you special coverage of the Zelensky speech starting around 7.30 Eastern. The social media platform TikTok is known for viral dances and a top-secret algorithm. But just this month, more than a dozen Republican governors have moved to ban the app on government devices. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to talk about where and why. Hi, Laura. Hi, Juana. So, Laura, who is banning TikTok? So far, at least 14 Republican governors from South Dakota to Alabama have issued bans or guidance against using TikTok on government devices. There are some differences between the bans, but they all say some version of the same thing. Basically, that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is based in China, and they're concerned about the app's data privacy. They say they fear it could be used by the Chinese government to gather information on U.S. residents. And this is actually coming at the same time as a bigger pylon of TikTok at the state government level. Indiana's attorney general recently sued the company, saying it violates the state's consumer protection laws. And so far, at least 15 attorneys general have asked Apple and Google to update their age rating for the app. So, Laura, what's the effect of these bans? And I should ask you, how do state governments use TikTok anyway? Well, I looked around and I found some examples like this one from Oregon and Utah election officials. Hi, I'm Utah Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson, and I oversee Utah elections. And I'm Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, and I oversee Oregon elections. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. But when it comes to vote by mail, we're on the same team. I also found some lighter examples, like this one from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife. We're updating some of our educational material about aquatic nuisance species, and these are some of the graphics that got rejected. So, starting off strong with combat carp. Posts like these will likely stop where the app is banned. Some of the bans also apply to state university systems, which may be using TikTok for recruiting. For example, Idaho just announced that no one will be able to use TikTok over the Wi-Fi connections at its public universities. And the bottom line is that the app is really big. TikTok announced last year that it had reached 1 billion monthly users globally. And in the U.S., about two-thirds of all teens say that they use it, according to the Pew Research Center. So while it's not the most popular social media platform overall, it's grown really, really quickly. So it's one where some government institutions and candidates want to be. You know, it feels like we've been hearing a lot more recently about 
government's interested in banning TikTok, but what's the backstory behind this? You may remember that former President Donald Trump attempted to ban TikTok several years ago. This is not exactly new, but more recently, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, warned Congress this fall that TikTok is a national security concern. Many of the governors now banning the app specifically mention his warnings. And that comes in part from a 2017 law in China that says all organizations and citizens must support national intelligence gathering if asked by the government. Another reason is just political. I talked to Thad Kauser, who's a political scientist at UC San Diego, and he says the bans are just popular with GOP politicians. It's both important for cybersecurity in their minds of, of their state, but also it's really important to establishing a Republican brand, right? A central tenet of what unites Republicans now is standing up to China. I should note that while at the state level, Republicans are leading the charge, at the federal level, the scrutiny is bipartisan. There's language in a bipartisan omnibus bill to keep the federal government funded that would ban TikTok on federal devices. It's expected to pass this week with bipartisan support. And Laura, before I let you go, what does TikTok say about these allegations, about these bans? TikTok spokesperson Brooke Oberwetter told me the company is, quote, disappointed that so many states are jumping on the political bandwagon, end quote. She said the company will continue to work with the federal government to try to address security concerns. You know, overall, cybersecurity experts say that, yes, TikTok poses a risk, but so does the broader environment of buying and selling user data online. That's NPR's Laura Benshoff. Laura, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how hotel managers are getting creative as they try to serve customers despite of a lack of hotel employees to do so. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. It was a strong day on Wall Street today, with each of the main indices picking up right about 1.5%. The Dow ended the day at 33,376. S&P closed at 38.78, and the Nasdaq finished at 10,709. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. The city of Watertown has the green light to impose fees on commercial development. The move comes after Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill last week that authorizes the fees on new commercial real estate projects. The money will help fund affordable housing initiatives. Several other communities have similar fee structures in place. They include Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, and Everett. This is WBUR. Support for WBUR's business report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Tonight at 7.30, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to address Congress during a trip aimed at underscoring U.S. support for the country as Russia's war against it drags on. You can hear Zelensky's address live at 7.30 right here at 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR 37 degrees now at 6.20. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet services over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If your holiday travels include a hotel stay, keep this in mind. There's a good chance that wherever you're staying will be acutely short-staffed. Despite higher wages, hotel owners and managers still can't fill positions. So they are having to adapt in all sorts of ways, as NPR's Andrea Shu reports. In the laundry room at the Country Inn and Suites on the north side of Baltimore, the dryers are humming, rags are soaking, and a four-year-old boy is happily snacking on some Ritz crackers as he watches his mother fold sheets. That's her son. The owners here, Deepak Patel and his wife Deepa, began allowing staff to bring their children to work last year. Business had picked up at the mid-scale hotel, but they were unable to bring back workers, especially in housekeeping. Childcare was a real issue for some staff, and the couple couldn't afford to lose anyone. So they decided... Okay, bring your child here. At least we are finishing the work, you know. Before the pandemic, the Patels had 25 to 30 people on staff. Now they're down to 14. They've had zero luck hiring this year, even though they've raised wages from about $10 an hour before the pandemic to $16 an hour now. Nobody wants to work, actually. And we kind of, we are still surprised at who, where everybody are. Deepak Patel knows he's competing with the Amazon warehouses nearby and a lot of other employers, too. These days, workers have a lot of choices. There are companies offering technical training and even free college tuition. In the old days, Patel says lots of people would just walk through the door and fill out a job application. Nowadays, no one. So he and his wife have been filling the gaps themselves. Since 2020, we haven't had a day off. We come every single day. They staff the front desk, manage the free breakfast, do room inspections, also laundry. Unload, load, put it in a dryer, put it in a washer. It's a whole family affair. Their two girls come every day after school to help out. And still, with just six people in housekeeping taking care of 81 rooms, they cannot offer the level of service they used to. Now they clean rooms only every four days, unless a guest requests otherwise. Of course, if somebody's here for one night, we definitely want to clean that room so we can resell that room to new guests. But if somebody's here for three nights, we don't clean that room until they check out. Deepak Patel has been thinking hard about whether this business even makes sense anymore. How do you run a 24-hour operation without workers? He's exploring all the options, including one I got to see in New York. So now I'm going to press this button. Off he goes. Merle Ayers is director of banquets at the Garden City Hotel on Long Island. He's brought me over to meet The Wiz, a robot vacuum, one of two the hotel bought late last year for roughly $30,000 each. The other one's up in housekeeping. So what's happening right now is The Wiz basically is following a pre-programmed route, and it's going to complete that route and vacuum the whole rug. Well, as long as we humans don't get in its way. It's trying to figure out where to go right now. You're kind of in its way, too. The Wiz will clean the red and gold carpet we're standing on in 30 to 40 minutes, about as long as it would take a human to do the same job. But it's not about saving time. It's about saving manpower. As you can see, the gentleman I have here working over here, he's doing something else while this is vacuuming the floor. Which is key because this hotel, with its gold ceilings and crystal chandeliers, is also short-staffed. Around 15 to 20 percent of their positions are unfilled. I've been in the hotel business for 
very long time, and I've never experienced this. Grady Cullen is managing director here. He's found that since the pandemic, workers want more freedom. They don't want to be tied down to their jobs. So just as the Patels have done in Baltimore, Cullen has become very accommodating of the staff. We've even tried to fill positions by saying, let's not make it a full-time. Whatever flexible hours, what hours do you have available? And we'll cobble together what would have been a 40-hour shift for one person with three or four. But what he won't touch, daily room cleanings and nightly turndown service. He says travelers paying four-star hotel rates expect an A-plus experience. This hotel is 148 years old and it's always been the dominant iconic property in its region. The reputation is caved. Deepak Patel's hotel in Baltimore has a much shorter history, but he is also thinking about how to keep guests happy. He's leaning toward leasing a robot vacuum to allow housekeeping to focus on other things. And another technology has caught his eye, a kiosk that would sit just inside the entrance. There's some person actually come to the screen as soon as you walk closer to the kiosk. A live person? I mean, on the screen outsourced somewhere in some country, but they can collect the payment, they can check in the gas, they can even make a key, they can make a room change. It's not something he would have ever thought about when workers were plentiful. And even now? We are not looking to replace the person 100%. It's some filling up the gap at some time. Like now, when the phone is ringing and Patel is the only one here. Do you need to answer the phone? Yeah, answer the phone, I'm sorry. I'll be right back. Before he got into the hotel business, Deepak Patel actually worked as a software engineer. Now he's thinking he ought to go back. A nine-to-five job would bring peace of mind, he says, and allow him to take his family on a long-overdue vacation. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Pittsburgh Steelers fans are in mourning today. The team announced the death of running back Franco Harris at age 72. His number, 32, was set to be retired Saturday, in part because of his role in the greatest play in NFL history, the Immaculate Reception. When he was drafted by the Steelers in 1972 out of Penn State University, Harris was ambivalent, as he shared in an interview with the team in 2019. At Penn State, I... uh really didn't follow the Steelers at all. And I didn't want to be drafted by the Steelers. (laughs) They stunk. The team hadn't made the playoffs since 1947. And Harris exceeded expectations, winning the NFL's Rookie of the Year award during the regular season. But that accomplishment would soon be eclipsed. Everybody says that they saw it. And one interesting thing is that it was not a sold-out game. And yet, everybody says they were at the stadium. (laughs) Franco Harris reliving the moment on the confluence from member station WESA. And even if you saw it that day in the stadium or on TV or now, 50 years later, it's sort of hard to comprehend. Quarterback Terry Bradshaw's original target deflected the ball, and a charging Harris scoops it before it hits the ground. And he never stops running until he makes it to the end zone. Looking for somebody to throw to. Fires it downfield. And there's a collision. That's cut out of the air. The ball is pulled in by Franco Harris. Wow, is that me? And just reflect back and realize how 
special that year, 1972, was, how incredible the play was, and then the unbelievable run that we had during the 70s. That unbelievable run, it includes four Super Bowl championships. Harris's immaculate reception, catch, and run put him and Terry Bradshaw in the annals of sports history. Bradshaw says he is still in a state of shock after hearing the news. And on Twitter, Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy said Harris was one of, quote, the kindest, gentlest men I have ever known. He was a great person and great teammate, a tremendous role model for me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Celtics are at home at the Garden tonight as they greet the Indiana Pacers, 7.30 game time. Tonight, clouds move in, temperatures down to about 28. Tomorrow, a heavy cloud cover, up around 47 for a high. Then the deluge begins. Rain moves in tomorrow night. Winds pick up. Even more forceful wind gusts on Friday, some as high as 60 to 65 miles an hour with drenching rain. High temperatures in the mid-50s Friday. Sunshine returns for Saturday with temperatures in the 20s. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth.